0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to CorbettReport.com. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and this is being released to you on the 21st of January, 2013, and this is the first ever episode of a brand new occasional podcast series that I'm releasing here at CorbettReport.com entitled Films, Literature, and the New World Order, or should that be Film Literature and the New World Order? But uh, people might recognize that from the title of a YouTube video series that I had and was producing a few years ago. I've produced several episodes of that. But because YouTube is YouTube and we've been over some of the problems with that and how uh, they don't really respect fair use and other such things, it's becoming more difficult to put up videos about, uh, about movies or about copyrighted materials. So in the effort of not having to worry about that at all, we're going to do a, an occasional podcast audio series on books and on movies that I think are of importance because often we can learn a lot about ourselves and about the, uh, the culture around us through this type of entertainment Programming and sometimes just actual literature. So it will be interesting to explore some of these things. Once again, for people who haven't checked out that video series, I suggest that you go. There's a playlist on YouTube that I'll link to in the uh, the notes section of today's podcast, where you can find out more about that. But basically, every third Monday of the month, we will be going over a new book or movie, talking about some of the ways that it relates to the things that we talk about here on the Corbett Report. And usually, I'll give you a month's heads up notice so that you can go and actually watch the movie or read the book ahead of time. But obviously, since this is the first episode, well, it's going to be a surprise for all of you. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a book called The Call of the Wild by Jack London. And this was originally published in 1903. So it is a, a, something of an old book at this point, but a very, very interesting one. And it, I must confess that this is probably a book I would never have read if it were not sent to me as a gift by our good friend Aaron Franz of Transistor Radio, who was sending me uh, some copies of his um, the, the newest edition of his book, Revolve, which of course includes a foreword by yours truly, James Corbett. And as a gift, he sent me this book, The Call of the Wild. And I read through it and I was very, very impressed with it. It has a lot of very interesting ideas in here. It's a very quick read. So if you want to go out and read this book, I I recommend it and it will not take very long. It only took me a couple of days and I wasn't even trying that hard to plow through this. So if you want to pause the uh, podcast at this point, then you can come back after you've read it, or you can just listen through. But I I have to admit, there will probably be spoilers in here. So if if you are planning to read it, you might want to read it first. Having said all of that, who better to start out this series with than with Aaron Franz to talk about the book that he sent to me. So we have Aaron on the line all the way from the States. Aaron, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Uh, Thank you, James. It's
0: great to be here to talk with you. Absolutely and uh, once again let me just say for the record that I absolutely did appreciate this book so thank you so much for sending it to me. But of course this coming from Aaron Franz of transistor resistor radio of course I had to see well what is the bigger meaning to this? Why did he send me this particular book And I think this relates quite strongly to a lot of the things that we've talked about in the past but perhaps we can uh, we can start talking about and addressing some of those themes here for the, the podcast. I guess first of all we should just start with the sort of general what is this book what is it about the the uh the ABCs of it and and I guess the long story short is that this is about a uh a dog named Buck who is mm-hmm. a sled dog for a certain amount of time he gets um, basically captured and then sold in uh, to uh, to an owner he eventually ends up with uh with a man that he respects and loves very much called Thornton and uh, and then at the very end Spoiler alert! Yes, at the very end, Thornton <laughs> dies, and uh, and and basically, Buck reverts to a form of savagery, a savagery, wilderness type, uh, type mentality. So, just as uh, some of the background to this, um, as I say, this was published in 1903. It was originally entitled "The Sleeping Wolf." Um, as I understand it, it was actually originally published as a serial in the Saturday Evening Post from June 20th to July 18th of 1903, which I did not know when I was reading the book, but actually I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, and as some background on Jack London, um, his real name was John Griffith Cheney. He was born in San Francisco, San Francisco in 1876. He was married twice, but only had one child who died within a few hours uh he was a controversial author in his day he was in favor of socialism and women's suffrage um he was a uh he was a very popular writer um so is, the call of the wild is was quite well known and um i guess that that serves as kind of an introduction but let's talk aaron let's talk a little bit about this book first of all let me satisfy my curiosity why did you send me this book in particular
1: oh uh, a host of reasons <laughs> one um one of just the basic things was that it was an old copy of the book, not a first edition, but like maybe a second edition or something. I just those are just always really cool. So I was like, okay, actually comes from that time. So it's just like a little little aspect of it. But when it comes to the actual content of the book, uh there are indeed a lot of ideas in this book that uh that are important and, and they have to do, as you said, about, there, um, they tie in with the topics that we've talked about before, I see a lot of, well, certainly you've got a Darwinian sort of philosophy portrayed in this book, big time sur- survival of the fittest, um, nature is cruel and only the strong can survive. That sort of uh, idea is uh, the main theme, really, of the book. And then along with that, uh, take that idea a little further, it even goes into a little bit of eugenic kind of breeding and things like that and uh, it it uses the dog, the main character Buck being a dog. I found in in reading uh, about eugenics specifically, um, the literature on eugenics, they tend to talk about dog breeding a lot um, because selective breeding and human breeding is so important to eugenics. That's what it's all about but they oftentimes use dog breeding as an example. So th- and this book ties in with that sort of motif. It, it
0: certainly does. And it's interesting because ultimately, I think the message is that you can you can take the dog out of the wilderness, but you can't take the wilderness out of the dog. I mean, it <laughs> seems to be that it's fundamentally about how we are all, um, we can be trained in various ways and we can adapt certain habits. But at the end of the day, we still are what we are. And I think that this book is fundamentally about Buck, Buck rediscovering what, what it is kind of deep down underneath, which presents a kind of interesting philosophy about about the way that, that humans are and the way they operate. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a lot to do with domestication. Of course, dogs are domesticated animals. Buck, at first, just living the good life on some southern... Uh, mansion house or something is very uh, pampered life. And then all of a sudden that's taken away from him and he's uh, thrust into this world where he's being abused, like abused hardcore and he's having to fight with every ounce of his uh, being to just survive, to merely survive. So um, uh, okay. yeah, yeah, the, the idea that nature, nature itself is a cruel, violent, Unforgiving and completely unloving thing. Uh, that, that's the main idea here, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's come at this
0: from the uh, the epigraph that begins the book, which is interesting in and of itself. Basically, the the opening words of the book are a, the first stanza of a poem, and its old longings, nomadic leap, chafing a customs chain again from its brumal sleep, wakens the fairy and strain which is an interesting little uh, little stanza in and of itself. This is actually part of a larger poem that's called Atavism, which <sighs> is by... Uh, oh, that's going to um, not only escape my memory, but escape <laughs> my Google abilities for the moment. I will get that back to you in a second, but I will put a link in the show notes as well so you can read the entire poem. And it's, uh, it's an interesting poem, but of course it brings up the idea of atavism. And what is atavism? Well, I guess we can turn to Wikipedia for the kind of basic... Uh, Con, uh, the basic definition atavism is the tendency to revert to ancestral type in biology and atavism is an evolutionary throwback such as traits reappearing which had disappeared generations before atavisms can occur in several ways one way is when genes for for previously existing phenotypical features are preserved in dna and these become expressed through a mutation that either knock out the overriding genes for the new traits or make the old traits override the new one a number of traits can vary as a result of shortening of fetal development, blah, blah, blah. So basically, this is the uh, the science and the, the actual study of how these kinds of biological throwbacks to our evolutionary past can occur. And of course, that is very much apropos to the book itself, talking about Buck and how he basically, as we say, reverts to his, his underlying phenotype or his underlying Mm -hmm. dna or whatever and of course this does come back to that issue of of eugenics and and i guess the idea at the end of the day is that there are certain traits there are certain dna there are certain features that are just part of us bred into us over millions of years and there's nothing we can do to get rid of them which seems to suggest i guess that in that in that eugenic philosophy, I guess there are just fundamentally good and bad types and we can eliminate them one way or another. And, um, I guess that's, I mean, is that ultimately what this is aiming at? I'm not sure that that's really the message of the (laughs) book, but certainly it's the way that I think a eugenicist would look at this idea.
1: I think a very important thing to note here is the, um, again it 's about domestication, so um, domesticated animal is not in its natural state it 's in an unnatural state it 's been made passive the aggression has been taken out of it, so it is it 's subdued it 's subservient to its master, which is a uh, human being a human being also living um, in civilization as we know it. The, the real point here that the book is making is that not so much dogs, but human beings are uh, domesticated creatures. So, so uh, living just in civilization, uh, any given civilization really, is a process of taking the natural um, uh, instincts to an extent out of the human being, the, taking the violent sometimes violent and aggressive nature out of man so that he be he can be made um to fit into civilization better this is um it's actually uh <laughs> while um being like this being passive being subdued actually helps the average person fit in to daily life it's also seen as weakness and um the natural man so, so again, away from dogs, but the natural man himself is an important symbol within uh, the occult and things like that. The natural man is the one who has not lost his inner spark, the natural inner spark, that fire inside. So he maintains his aggression. He maintains his virility, his strength, his like male dominance. He doesn't let the world kick him around. You know what I mean? So this is, again, a bohemian philosophy. It gets into uh, the symbolism of Dionysus. The god Dionysus kind of fits into the whole natural man thing. Um, But but, but that's the idea here, is that uh, domestication is weakness. And those who are truly strong are the ones who say, I won't be domesticated. I am a man, which... uh, uh, stands up for himself and fights back when he needs to things like that
0: well first of all I, I, you're obviously completely right i mean this is i guess ostensibly a book about a dog but i think obviously this is very much more a commentary on human society from the eyes of a dog but obviously uh, the the dog has been so anthropomorphized that it is really just a, another human character in a way so i think we do have to understand it in that way and I think you're, again, you're exactly right that this is about that master-servant narrative. And it's interesting, um, I guess there are a couple of ways to approach this. First of all, it's interesting that this book comes out in 1903 at almost precisely the time that Freud is there on the scene publishing some of his major works. And his entire theory of civilization is basically that... Uh, we are this raging tumult of 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 instinct and and uh, and emotions and and th- that's raging underneath the surface that is kept through a thin veneer of of basically learned and adopted traits traits and repression and and different psychological techniques that we all use to try to keep this tumult down and that's what we refer to as civilization basically this this construct that's been put around us to to try to subdue some of our domesticate i suppose our 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 wilder nature and uh, at the same time as he's wrestling with those ideas, someone like Jack London, who was, an, uh, from what I understand, not highly educated, but certainly just someone who had lived a quite interesting life with some different biographical background uh, as a gold prospector, as a journalist, as a factory worker, etc., and he's putting this together and putting it out in a in a literary form. So I think there are some parallels there. But I, I guess ultimately, I came away with this at the end, thinking of this as a positive. Uh, narrative in a way it was kind of uplifting in a way to see that um, because i I look at that master servant narrative and and I look at it as the way that the the ruling would be elite try to Repress basically human nature in various ways and try to tell you how to act and try to dissuade you from being who you are. But at the end of the day, who you are will ultimately win out. And I, I, within the context of the book at least, I thought of that as a positive philosophy. That basically they can attempt to to try to shape our opinions and mold our perceptions and try to make us behave in certain ways. But at the end of the day, they're going to fail at that because at the end of the day, our 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 basic nature will. Will ultimately overpower whatever conditioning they try to put us under.
1: Yeah, it's it's a real catch twenty two situation here because you've got uh, <laughs> you, you've got um, the idea of um, uh, unleashing the personal potential and the freedom of the individual to not be subdued to not be to not be, um, t- to not be may, uh, made less. Uh, to, to, to be brought into the fold. Um, and, and then you have the other side of the coin. Okay, so, so that is the philosophy of delete or whatever we want to call them, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like uh, the, the idea that one should try do everything in their power to be a free person and not let um, whatever uh, standards get in your way to bring you down in any sort of way but again if we're talking about civilization as a whole it's 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 an odd thing because the right way to go is seen as this you know this natural just just let your natural instincts um, t- don't um, don't allow yourself to cow down but at the same time it's required in a way that people do uh, <laughs> you know I mean I, I know there's that Rockefeller quote like uh, something to do with education how he said he didn't want a nation of philosophers he wanted a nation of workers so you know and he sets up education as such so that will people so that people will fall in line so that what they'll do what they are told you know I mean that's not a good thing but but for those who can break out of it, I mean that's obviously a good thing so so, so it's weird you've got the people who they themselves uh, understand this whole natural man. Ideal, and, and they relate to it. And they're like, okay, yeah, you know, we are, we are the ones in control here. You know, we're not letting ourselves be, um, be domesticated, so we're wild animals. We remain to be we remain wild animals in a sea of domesticated creatures. But hey, you know what? We need those domesticated creatures because if we didn't have them, we wouldn't have civilization at all. And then, <laughs> and then everybody'd just be wild animals, and they'd be uh, then it'd be a real fight for survival. Then, and they themselves would be in trouble. So it's uh, it's just weird. So I, I do I do actually agree with what you say, though. It's it's not a bad idea, and the book. I think the book is uplifting in, in that aspect. I think everybody can relate to that. Every, everybody wants to break out of their cage. You know, they don't want to be the rat in the cage, as that um, the song says and all that. You, you, that's just ingrained in all of us. But it's also very difficult to break out of our comfort zone. It certainly is.
0: And I, I must admit, I, I in my first reading, I, I wasn't reading deeply. I was just sort of reading through it. But it did leave me with that impression. And the impression that I get from the take of it, at least from the context of when I was reading it, was that this is, in some ways, maybe the, the elite nightmare that this carefully controlled and crafted and uh, society that they've tried to create. And obviously this book predates a lot of the, the uh, social conditioning techniques that were developed in the 20th century, but I think perhaps envisages at least part of how that process works. But the idea that that whole system can be undermined by people basically just rediscovering their nature is in some ways, I think, perhaps an elite nightmare because they like to dream that they can control society through all of this conditioning. But at the end of the day, perhaps it's all for naught because we are still just basically humans and we will continue to revert to that. I don't think I don't know if that will actually play itself out in the real world, but at the very least, it's an interesting idea to think about. Um, Certainly, as people just become more and more kind of beat down and conditioned, well, the, you know, that's just the way the government is. It's, that's just how the society functions. There's nothing we can do about it. This, in a way, posits a different type of idea. No, there is something you can do about it. All it takes is the rediscovery of who you are. So I, I do see that positive aspect to it. So let's, let's see if there are negative or darker aspects to all of this as well.
1: Negative or darker. I would say one of the main dark ideas in this book would probably have to be the whole part where Buck um, bonds with that uh, man who, who became his owner up there. And um, it it goes off into that story for a whole chapter, you know, they're um, they're bonding with each other and this bond of love uh, is uh, illustrated in, in a whole chapter at least as I remember it. And then uh, after that, the bond is broken. Um, That whole idea that you know the relationship between uh, the man and the dog was symbolic of uh, just being caring, nurturing, and letting that sort of natural, violent, aggressive spark in you die to an extent, but die for a good reason, die for the sake of this loving relationship. So, uh, th- this this sort of relationship is something that everybody can. Uh, relate to. I I would hope that everybody can relate to it at least. This is the sort of relationships we have with our families, with our friends, you know, and it makes us kinder, gentler people. So uh, that is a good thing. This book goes to the extreme end of, you know, you have to just unchain yourself completely uh, to the extent where that um, any sort of love is actually weakness You see, so, (laughs) so it's one, it's again, going back to what we said before, it's one thing to say, yes, we should let, um, we should not let ourselves be domesticated. We should stand up for ourselves, things like that. But there's also something to be said for being a kind, gentle person too. So it's a weird, it's a delicate balance. This book goes to the extreme end where it's like, you know, the balance is for the weak and, and Buck goes on and, and, gets to he goes on to breed with the wolves and they become some sort of superior super dog wolf creature and that's obviously a very eugenic idea
0: that's true it's true it it is that kind of dichotomy between the the loving relationships and the and the wildness of nature and uh and that is actually a very important point of all of this but in the end, it doesn't completely eradicate that. He still does have that affect- affection for Thornton at the very end, where um he returns to that that place in the woods where uh, Thornton died every every year or every month or whatever to to you know sing his song. So uh, there is still that bond at the very end. That's still that loving relationship, but that really is the last bond to to the world that he once knew. And uh, I, I guess the implication is that what, at the very least, whatever offspring this uh, the buck has are not going to are not going to have that type of uh, relationship. So, so you're exactly right. There is that kind of dichotomy there, and it does seem to represent. Well, it, it, you have to free yourself entirely. You have to break all the bonds of civilization, <laughs> which, of course, would be um, not not I think not the type of thing that we ultimately want. So it, it is it is a, this kind of delicate balance as you say i mean obviously we do need to repress our instincts and that's what makes us human that what that is what differentiates us from the animals our ability to to cognitively realize what it is that we're doing and to 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 stop ourselves from acting on impulse etc that is what human intelligence and and self uh, cognition is all about but uh but then there's always with that 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 psychological mechanism we've developed, there is the possibility for other people to come in and sort of control that process and manipulate it and get us to uh, to start second guessing ourselves and acting in ways that we wouldn't normally do it. So I guess maybe uh, not t- th- talking specifically about the book here, but philosophically, I mean, I guess the point is that we have to be not only cognizant of what it is that we're doing and our ability to control our impulses but also of the fact that other people want to control our impulses as well and we have to sort of check what we're doing against what other people are trying to manipulate us to do which is kind of this meta level cognition that's necessary to to truly be a uh, free and independent human beings who are able to live within society
1: and to have those kinds of loving bonds yeah yeah totally yeah there is also the aspect of uh It seemed to be sort of the ritual abuse concept was in this, too. And Buck first gets taken away, and he's abused very hard, abused very badly. And um, this abuse, uh, oddly enough, is what actually sort of brings about this change in him to become a stronger creature, so so this is another kind of disturbing aspect I found, too, is that abuse, um, let's see here, there's a lack of food, physical extremes, harsh discipline, all this brings on strength. What, what do you think about that aspect? Exactly right. That is
0: definitely something that is a recurring theme in here. It's always the discipline and the punishment. And that does achieve certain results. Certainly he does toughen up and become sort of more of a worker dog after the abuse. So there is that aspect to it. And then the other, I guess, the other theme that they try to tie in here is that, yes, you can get sort of results that way, but the only way you can get a dog that would not only be willing to do anything, but able to do anything, able to do these super, superhuman, super dog (laughs) feats of strength, etc., is through the loving relationship. So we see towards the end when he uh, gets into Thornton's service and loves Thornton and Thornton loves him. And he ends up uh, doing the uh, the dog sled race, and he ends up p- pulling, you know, more than anyone thought he could pull, and he wins the bet for Thorn, et cetera. I guess the implication is that because that was based on a loving bond, it was even
1: stronger than than what was achieved yeah. through
0: through abuse.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah, that is a good um, point that the book makes there, because um, yes, some uh, some would be of the mind that you know the. <laughs> The ritual abuse basically is uh, the only way to make someone strong. And this whole thing, it it makes me think of what I've read about um, ritual abuse and uh, mind control techniques and things like that, Uh, ritual-based mind control and all that. And it, it, it made me think of that when I read it. And anybody who would be operating under the idea that ritual abuse is the way to, like, create some sort of super soldier, super spy, whatever, like some sort of uh, perfect purpose-made person for whatever purpose you're going for, they're not going to be correct because, you, you know, they're it's uh, it, it's missing that um, – well, it's missing the, the love. And how, how could you – I, it's it's so difficult for the average person to even understand how that sort of thing could come about but but, but at the same time somebody th- thinks that's a good idea you, you know what I mean so uh, it's it's disturbing yes and absolutely
0: right there are people out there who do believe that it's only through the sternness and the abuse and the and sort of that breeding that almost hate relationship is the only way to get any any kind of order in the world. And I think we can see that obviously, unfortunately, from a lot of the people who are in Positions of political power and social control, and uh, and who have economic influence in the world, that believe that it's. I mean, that is the social Darwinistic philosophy, right? It's only the strongest that will survive this great battle for resources that's going on in the world, and we can see that unfortunately playing out in all sorts of ways. Which is why I think perhaps I was left with more of an impression of this book as being kind of anti-authoritarian in that sense, and somewhat hopeful because it presents the idea that no, ultimately the love bond is stronger. And will be more important at the end of the day than anything that's achieved through that type of that kind of abuse or or putting people down. So I guess that's perhaps part of the reason I felt at the end of the day that this book was was more about the positive aspects of this than the negative.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think you're right about that. It's definitely uh, definitely comes from a good place. And anybody who reads it is going to, oh, well, they're, they're all going to relate to it, and they're going to see the good in the book, and they're like, okay, this, it's, it's a classic. What can you say? It's a classic book. It is, and I must admit, uh, since you mentioned it, yes, I do appreciate
0: this is a very old edition. It's 1910, so just uh, a few years after the original edition, and uh, it is, it is, there is something about reading an old book, and perhaps even the process of reading an old, you know, paper-bound book um, from, you know, 100 years ago. I mean, there's something to that as well that perhaps we can reflect on in this age of technology and ebooks and, you know, instantaneous downloads and all of that. There's something uh, there's something that we are sort of losing. And that was another thing that I was kind of left with th- through this book, this sense that that we are losing or perhaps have already lost certain key elements of our past, our, our, our shared past, our ancestral past, because of the world that we've kind of slotted ourselves into or been slotted into. And that it's important for us to to reflect on that and perhaps even to mourn for what it is that we're losing, because that might be an important part of who we are. And that might explain some of the reasons why we feel so disconnected and and affected by the world around us because we have lost something about our past and about the ways that humans have related to each other in that past
1: yeah i couldn't agree more this is uh always a concern with things that i talk about on my radio show and just in my book and all that it's a major concern of mine is what have we lost what have we lost and um How much more could we lose and what uh, are the trends in this uh, area? How far can this whole thing go? You know, civilization is one thing and you've got the pros, you've got the cons, but the whole domestication aspect is very disturbing. I mean, how domesticated are human beings at the moment? You know, I, I don't think it would be useful to say that we're not because in my mind, we are—we're Or we're certainly domesticated to a great extent, uh, but but why is that? Um, what is the history of that? I guess uh, what is the history, oh, and what is the future? Again, what are the trends in this, uh, especially to do with aggression? Again, all aggressive instincts. Uh, now, see, it, it's it's very easy to um, villainize all aggression, all violent nature within mankind. Because we, we obviously have it. It's there. And it's plain to see for anyone. But <laughs> is it a bad thing necessarily? No, it actually serves a purpose. Uh, the purpose, main purpose being for our aggression is to defend ourselves. You know, Because if, if we don't have the instinct to fight back when we need to, then we're going to die. We're going to die out. We're not going to survive. And I feel a lot of where we're going today has to do with the villainizing of uh, the human aggressive nature. And and a lot of people out there would want to, again, if you get into the transhumanist angle, some of them actually say, you know, know, we should put chips in our brain or use some sort of technological technology Devices that suppress um bad emotions that suppress bad uh, e- could suppress aggression things like this they actually posit that as like a solution to you know violence in the world or something it's it's just a very generic thing but it's it's such a wide broad thing that if we were to do something like that, the implications would be massive and be very very dangerous f- for everybody involved. Well, I think you're right that we've been
0: offered false templates about nonviolence and what that is and how we can implement it because, I mean, it's important to keep in mind, I mean, Jesus was angry when he threw the money changers out of the temple and Martin Luther King and um, and Gandhi were people who were deeply conflicted about the use of violence in various stages of their thinking and, and advocated different strategies in different situations. So I think we've been given this myth that there's this perfectly ultimately completely peaceful person out there or that's the ideal that we should be striving at. And, uh, of course, that is not not only unrealistic, but perhaps not even what some of the uh, the great nonviolent teachers throughout history have taught. So <laughs> I think we have to, to be uh, interrogating some of those notions a lot more deeply than we have in the past. And I think there is something to be said about the fact that, well, whatever whatever we want to attain, whatever kind of ideal we want to strive for, at the end of the day, if we are human beings and we do have these instincts, I think it's perhaps more reasonable to to look at how we can live with those instincts rather than to, to suppress them entirely or pretend they don't exist. Because I think they come out more violently once they are released. So I think there has to be some sort of honest accounting for who we are as human beings. And at the very least, we can read a book like *The Call of the Wild* to see that there is that that note of the missing, the lost, that thing, that 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 state of wilderness that we have that has been taken out of us, but is still there. Or at least, at the very least, we still feel its its absence, which I think is is um, something at the end of the day that's important for us to cogitate on occasionally um, to at least understand what it is that that has been bred out of us or is missing. So I think there is that. Uh, that very real question of the domestication, how far have we been domesticated? Is it always a bad thing? And if not, when is it a good thing? And how can we use that, you know, positively? Or should we revolt against it entirely? At the very least, I think these are the types (laughs) of things that we should be looking at in relation to this novel. But I don't want to beat a dead horse, so to speak, or I suppose a dead dog. Um, So perhaps (laughs) we should... Uh, Just to wrap this up, with any any other thoughts that you want to leave listeners with, or anything that you want to uh, bring to their attention with regards to the Call of the Wild.
1: Well, I, for what it's worth, I did read online last night that Jack London um, attended. A Bohemian Grove, and he even wrote up some uh, plays for rituals at it. I, I, now, I, I don't know. I read this on Wikipedia, so, you know. <laughs> you tell me if this actually happened or not. It's just an interesting little note. I don't know. That is very interesting. I had no idea about
0: that, so I will definitely look into that. Um, yeah, what, yeah. What do you think that might mean?
1: Well, it, it makes sense. Again, I, this whole, if, if you get back to the Dionysus, <sighs> Dionysian philosophy—I guess you say—of the natural man. That's what all, all about. What uh, that is, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove is Dionysus. You've got the whole—they do their stage plays there. Plays are—it's um, it, basically an altar to Dionysus, the stage. So uh, there's that. There's the drunken revelry. You know, the cremation of care, and the natural man uh, reveling in his earthly power, his, uh, divine spark. I, I, I have to say that, I mean, there is that aspect in the book and, and, and obviously, I, I mean, it makes sense that Jack London would, um, you know, fit into the whole bohemian crowd. This this is the, it's the way of the bohemian, you know, the bohemian makes their own rules they, they they're not domesticated creatures whatsoever. They make their own rules in life. And, uh, Indeed, you're right.
0: And, and just uh, to back you up on that, uh, going from the Wikipedia, they do have a link to the uh, the footnotes of a book called "The Literary History of the American West." That is noting that one of um, Jack London's plays, "The Acorn Planter," was in fact written for the Bohemian Club's hijinks. So you're exactly yeah. right. Uh, that is interesting. I had absolutely <laughs> no idea about that connection. So I will probably be. Uh, looking scrutinizing this a little more closely, uh, the next time I read it, but that is an interesting connection. And it's interesting to note that, uh, according to Wikipedia at any rate, he, um, he first attended in 1904. So that would have been the year after the call of the wild came out. So perhaps the, um, the, the Bohemians saw something in this that they very much liked and, uh, and that mm-hmm. that in itself is interesting, but it doesn't surprise me. I suppose a, a literary uh, a, a figure from the uh, from the Western United States who makes makes a big name for himself is probably going to be approached by these groups unless he's very much against them. So, so the, yeah. uh, just another interesting piece of the puzzle. Thank you for bringing that to my attention.
1: Oh yeah, no problem.
0: All right. Well, I think we will leave it there for now. Um, and certainly, I'm interested to hear other people's comments on on this and uh, and what anything that you have to say about this novel. So, of course, you can send that in through the uh, the comment form, the contact form on CorbettReport.com, and I'll be happy to share people with uh, share with people some of the responses in, uh, in next episode. So, the next episode will be released uh, on the third Monday of February. Which, checking my calendar, that will be uh, February 18th. And we will be talking about the movie Syriana. So you can go and watch Syriana now for your viewing pleasure and uh, and keep your thinking cap on while you're watching it so we, we can have a discussion about that next next month. But uh, that's going to do it for today. Aaron Franz, of course, is available at theageoftransitions.com, which I couldn't recommend highly enough. Of course, he's got his uh, Age of Transitions documentary. He's got his book, Revolve, Man's Scientific Rise to Godhood. He's got his podcast, Um, Lots of work coming out through there, Um, although I noticed there haven't been a lot of posts to the website recently. hoping (laughs) we'll see uh, some big projects coming in 2013.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I'm I'm hard at work. Uh, My apologies to everyone. I'll get back on the podcasting and do more. And again, I'm working on The Age of Transitions 2. It's coming along well. It will be out as soon as I can finish it. Excellent. Well, I'm waiting with bated breath. We will have you on once
0: that's available. So and everyone, in the meantime, check out theageoftransitions.com and uh, let me know what you think about The Call of the Wild. And that's going to do it for the first edition of Film Literature in the New World Order. I'm looking forward to talking to you all again very soon.